Hi, Money on the Left and Superstructure listeners. You're listening to a preview of part one of Scott Ferguson's mammoth two-part Star Wars A New Hope lecture. Part one engages the hyper-Newtonian aesthetics and technology of the canonical film, while a later installment will dive into the socio-historical context of the franchise. You can access the full lecture by becoming a member of our Patreon, which is a great way to support our work by helping us compensate everyone involved with the production of our podcasts. As well, you should also know that this isn't a hard paywall. If you're experiencing financial hardship, please reach out to us, and we'll facilitate your access. Enjoy this preview, and I'll see you online. I often find it's helpful, especially early on, to do some comparisons with Spielberg's hyper-Newtonian aesthetics, uh, to to put Lucas's or the Star Wars's aesthetics, um, which of course were not just created by Lucas, um, into greater relief. You know, so we can uh, we can trace them and understand them uh, on their kind of on their own terms. So it's helpful to see where Lucas and Spielberg converge, in addition to how they diverge. So, for example, Lucas prefers to show it all and to show it all pretty quickly. And, and he actually likes to surprise you by showing big, immense, immersive uh, effects elements. He doesn't hold back in the same way that we get uh, in Jaws or if you've seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, very much structures Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So think of uh, the very opening sequence of Star Wars um, we, after we pan down, we get that title scroll sequence uh, and pan down um, uh, to the to the planet Horizon. We first see um, kind of coming uh, into the frame this blockade runner spaceship, which is of a kind of modest size, and then the um, very famous moment when the enormous Star Destroyer with its triangular-shaped pointy tip um, overwhelms us. And with its visual, taking over the visual field, being bigger than the, than the shot can actually contain at first, and of course um, um, accompanied by massive base effects as well, even though we're in the middle of space and we shouldn't be able to hear anything. Um, massive base effects, right? So, you know, Lucas wants to show you right away, whereas Spielberg wants wants to hold back. And Spielberg, you know, I often talk about Spielberg as being a tease. You know, he's Spielberg is a tease, and he likes the tease of horror, and he likes the tease of certain kinds of eroticisms as well that we definitely see uh, in Jaws. Um, something else we could say that's a little bit different. Spielberg is more interested in kind of playing up the passive passion of the blockbuster as an experience and creating that sense of a passive being kind of caught up, uh, in a mimetic passion with the blockbuster, with the blockbuster screen, um, that, that kind of, you know, really gets at his commitment to a sense of sublime wonder 
Uh, and we see this in the Spielberg face technique um, that's in Jaws and that's in even more profoundly in Close Encounters. And then we see it coming in, in you know, Indiana Jones and E.T. and all these later films. Um, Lucas is more, em- more interested in emphasizing action. Kinetic aesthetics of speed, activity, intense physical motion um, of, of both elements like spaceships and characters and vehicles and, you know, asteroids and all kinds of things. Um, but also the, the camera. The camera is, is fast moving, fast acting and being able to move in all sorts of directions, 360 degrees, a kind of 360 degree freedom. And... You know, that's that's the kind of sublime contiguity of uh, uh, for for uh, Lucas, um, which is it's less passive. Now, this is even more complicated because there is that dimension of the passive passion and the awe in in Lucas as well. It's just, I would say, uh, as with a lot of these elements, a lot of these um, blockbuster commitments, they come in different emphases, in different patterns. So, um, you know, you could say that obviously Steven Spielberg is interested in action. You, you get action in Spielberg films, but it's balanced out by a much stronger commitment to, to a, passive, um, a passive moment, a, a, res- a receptive mimetic moment that again most forcefully comes out in the Spielberg face you know it's in Lucas too but you know he also does it in other ways so for example in the mythos of the force which we will be talking about more in this lecture later on I just want to in passing mention that um, part of the mythology of the force is that you know you have to kind of let go and open up to it and be receptive to it. And it partly controls your actions in addition to you acting um, through it, right? So that that sense of a, a passive receptivity is there, um, but I think it more gets played out like in dialogue and theme um, and then sort of implicitly through aesthetics when Lucas is really giving us more of an action forward, action emphasizing uh, action first, a kind of um, hyper Newtonian um, aesthetic. Like Spielberg's, Lucas's camera is distinctly post classical. It's more quasi diegetic, like we said of Spielberg's cinematography, and particularly during scenes of motion, action, speed, and above all, violence. Subtle examples of this include scenes in the desert and Rocky Canyon with the Jawas and Sam people. The camera in these moments not only becomes handheld and shaky and unstable, but we also get ambiguous point of view shots that are a bit reminiscent of those underwater shots in Jaws when we're never quite sure whether we're looking from Jaws' point of view or a more embodied omniscient point of view. More obvious examples, of course, appear in spectacular space and space battle sequences when the camera seems to occupy the same volumetric space that ships fly by and around. Also, in those spectacular flying point of view shots that happen from spaceship cockpits, like we see in the final 
um, battle sequence around the Death Star. Previously, we've talked a lot about what we've called the Spielberg sublime or the Spielbergian sublime. Well, in Lucas, sublimity tends to be created in a slightly different way. It's more created from an immersive presentation of immensity, a presentation that makes the spectator feel mass and scalar difference. Spielberg, too, will go in this direction, uh, especially beginning with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I don't want to suggest that this is just George Lucas that is giving us this version of uh, what we might call the blockbuster sublime. But for Lucas, it is primary. Whereas for Spielberg, he's still going to be teasing us um, with all kinds of other elements suggestive of his particular version of the Spielbergian sublime. So just to um, give you a sense of how Lucas's sublime aesthetic works, I wanna walk through the very famous opening sequence to Star Wars A New Hope. After the triumphant appearance of the Star Wars logo, which is set to John Williams' military march and trumpeting music, we see a yellow scroll that seems to be traveling in an angular upward way back into space. The scroll spells out a harrowing scenario that pits good versus evil. And those who grew up in the 50s and 60s, not to mention the 30s and 40s, would immediately recognize both the graphics and the kind of storytelling as belonging to a serial like Flash Gordon, which began with a similar scroll. Though in the case of Flash Gordon, which was a black and white film or film series, the text was white, not yellow. The scroll appears at once to be abstract text without mass or weight, and yet it still seems to ambiguously occupy volumetric space. As the text floats up and away, we're bathed in the inky blackness of space. The stars seem to sparkle as the camera tilts down slowly to the blue haze of a planet, its surface spanning off as far as the eye can see. The score quiets to a murmur allowing us just a moment to admire the serenity of the view before a ship, the skinny and jagged tentative four, hurtles overhead, pursued by the sound of laser fire. As Williams's orchestra builds up to another crescendo, another unexpectedly huge shape looms into view from above. It's our first glimpse of an imperial Star Destroyer, a vast, white, and overwhelming battleship that overtakes our view from behind and above. The Destroyer exceeds the camera, and with this, our perceptive capacities as spectators. Its triangular, pointed shape recalls the tip of a spear, an index of something far larger and powerful. It seems particularly large owing to the camera's limited framing and low angle and finely detailed differentiations on the ship's 
underside surface. It also feels especially enormous because despite the fact that sound waves don't travel in outer space, the ship seems to generate low rumbling bass effects and forceful whooshing sounds that vibrate through the spectator's body, along with deeply material and echoing laser fire running after the smaller ship. The speed of the destroyer's movement is slow and bulky. It gives the impression that's vaguely reminiscent of Jaws moving through the ocean on the hunt. As the ship's thrusters appear in the back of the ship, they burn hot and bright. The light seems to pierce deeply into the camera lens, generating dynamic blue lens flare bursts as the massive ship drives further into the distance, as if chasing not only the tentative four smaller ship, but also those scrolling graphics that have long disappeared. The destroyer draws closer to and dwarfs the tentative four ship as the battle intensifies. We see a shot reverse shot in which the ships now push toward rather than away from the camera. The action moves diagonally now along the z-axis, accentuating cinematic movement in a way that is at once singular to Star Wars, but also recalls the Lumiere Brothers film, Arrival of a Train, that once excited early cinema spectators. When the destroyer's laser fire finally makes contact, we cut first to a shot of the exterior of the tentative four ship, which we see in part exploding. Then we cut immediately to an interior view of the ship. Inside, we see a frantic C-3PO and R2-D2 struck by the blast and running for their lives. Our first glimpse inside is unsteady and at first a bit blurry since the camera rattles in response to the exterior attack. Throughout this now iconic sequence, we feel a deeply embodied and immersive camera and we're overcome with sublime differences in weight and scale. And the abstract text that appears first in the scroll, in retrospect, as the scroll moves away, seems to be making us feel the way that we are moving from a world of abstraction into a world of immense density, volume, and scalar differences. Shallow,